going to celebrate today after the sermon is this. It's the fact that God, he couldn't figure out a better way to save you from your sins than for his own son, that which was so precious to him, to come and to live in your place, to live perfectly, and then to die a death that he didn't deserve to die, and then to give us a life that we didn't deserve to receive. And he gave it to us freely. There's nothing that you have to do work-wise to get this. It's a gift for those who believe in Christ. And so we celebrate that today. It's a very serious tone in one sense of the fact that I mean, goodness, it's terrible to have to explain to children that the brutality of the death of Christ. But it was brutal, not only physically but spiritually. And so there's, a, there's an ominous tone to it. But there's that celebration tone as well. That you get to come and eat and dine here today. And it's just a foretaste of what we gain in heaven. So let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Asking him to just encourage us and teach us and bless us. Father, there are such huge things that we're dealing with today. These aren't light and small, uh, but they're massive in your economy. Father, we are dealing with you. And when we do that, we feel very small. We are dealing with a gospel that assaults our pride and ego. That says we didn't earn it. We, we didn't do anything to gain it. And we have just been raised to be self-made men and women that we've earned whatever we get. And this gospel that you give us, it's free. No strings attached. God, we pray for those this morning who are here who may be struggling with these realities. As simple as the gospel may seem, they still don't want to believe it. They're trying to inject some of themselves into the middle of it. And God, I pray that you would show them that you are sufficient for them and that they would repent not only of the bad things that they've done, but even repent of the righteous acts that they've done trying to gain your favor. Father, we pray for those who are here who are struggling and troubled with different things going on in their lives, that you would bless them and encourage them. And in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the storm, that they would see you and find peace in you alone. Father, for others who are celebrating good things going on in their world, would they, would they see you as the Father who loves to give good gifts to his children and bless us in that way? Father, we pray for Jeff and Becky Peters this week as they go out and they head to Haiti. The challenge of a new culture, the challenge of being someplace that has so little when we have been blessed with so much. Would you make them effective in their ministry and would they know that we here that their family and church are praying for them and in some ways with them uh, as they go? Would we uh, be reunited soon and hear stories of what you've done in the lives of those little ones and even in Jeff and Becky's life? Father, we pray that our church would be a church of great generosity, not simply in bumper crops and other things, but just in the way that we live our lives, that we would be a blessing to the community around us. Father, would we be a church that if we disappeared today, we'd be missed, that we are of some value to folks here on the island and in Bluffton and surrounding. But Father, work in us. Would you establish your kingdom further in us? Um, Use all of the incredible myriad of gifts and talents that you've brought together here for your kingdom's sake. God, we praise you today. And we ask now for your spirit to bless the reading and hearing of your word and encouragement through it. To Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to finish, I say that so 
afraid to say that because I've said that we're going to finish the fruit of the Spirit the last couple of weeks. But we're going to look at the last two fruit uh, in this list. We're looking at gentleness and self-control. We said that in Galatians 5, in the lessons that we've been looking at, that Paul has come and been teaching in the churches there in Galatia. Uh, sending this letter around that was circulated and the people would have been reading it and it was a challenge because they'd gotten turned into some wrong teaching and bought into some basically what we would call moralism or legalism that by your moral life or your legal life of how well you obey God's law uh, that you would have a better position with God in that if you were a good uh, southern church attender who came to church every week and you sang and you were in your Bible study and you had your quiet time and you did all of that that somehow that was going to get you a little further up the chain, that it was Jesus plus God, or plus you, uh, to get all of this stuff done. Paul said that's not it. It's Christ alone who does all of this and works in our lives. And everything else that we do leads us to bondage. If you're looking to somebody other than God the Father to validate your life, then you are in bondage to everybody else, aren't you? If you walked in today and you were taking a poll, an opinion poll, uh, on whether you were popular, whether people liked you, how would you feel if the poll today was 100% acceptance rate? Would y'all feel good? Some of you feel good? Any of you? Yeah, I mean, we'd feel good. I would. What's the danger in getting 100% approval rating this week? Man, you're wondering, yeah, the next week of, gosh, what do I have to do to sustain that? And then let's say next week you've done nothing really in and of yourselves differently, but you come in and you walk in and flashing on the screen up here, it says, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm afraid to even pick a name because one of you has that name, uh, but sorry, Joe. Um, any Joes out there? Oh, well, shoot, a couple of you. Sorry, guys. Uh, but your approval rating is dipped to 42%. Now how are you going to feel? You're going to feel terrible, aren't you? And so you'd work the following week to get that approval rating up. And you'd manipulate and you would lie and you would do everything you could to get that up. You're in bondage to the validation that other people give you. What Paul is trying to say is that there is only one voice in the universe that validates you as an individual, as a person. And it's the voice of your creator. And what he says is, in my son, you're enough. In my son, you have what it takes. It's only in my son that you will find all of these things. So quit looking elsewhere. Quit looking to other idols, other gods, uh, other things that are out there, counterfeits that are out there in the world. Quit looking to all of those other things to validate your life. Husbands, quit looking to your wives to validate you as men. Women, quit looking to your husbands to validate you as women. Uh, Children, quit looking to your parents to validate you and all of that, or parents to your children to validate you. But you're looking, you have to look up to the Heavenly Father who says, I validate I say this about you and it's true and once you hear that and once it's established in your life through the work of the spirit all of a sudden things begin to be born out of your life because you can bask in the freedom of who you are in Christ you can bask in the establishment uh, that you are safe in him then all of a sudden these things begin to be developed in your life things like love joy peace patience kindness goodness Gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That all of a sudden these things are borne out because the Spirit of God is at work in you and you're okay. You're able to love people who aren't lovable. Why? Because you don't worry if they love you back. You're not validated by them. 
You can enjoy life because the circumstances of your life aren't the things which determine whether or not you're going to be joyful in the world because you can experience a joy and a flourishing peace in the midst of difficulty because why? Because the circumstances, of course not. The circumstances mitigate against that. Everything wrestles against that. But you can still be a joyful person. You can still be a person who's at peace in the middle of that. And people around you are going to go, I don't get it. All this bad stuff's happening. How are you at peace? How can you have joy in the middle? Because I still hear the voice of my Father in heaven who says, well done. That I love you. That my son is for you. I'm for you and against you. And I'll see you through this. All of a sudden, you can have a kindness towards other people who don't deserve to be kind. Because you don't worry what other people have to say about you. You ever done that? You're kind to somebody And then other people around you go, why are you being nice to that person? They sort of are upset that, and it's really bad sometimes in the Christian and church community, that you go love somebody who's kind of unlovable in the community and people start looking at you going, why is Bill hanging out with that person? Because somehow my reputation is going to be hurt by it. But if I'm not worried about my reputation because it's secure in Christ, then I can be very kind to other people. I can be generous to other people. I cannot covet what other people have because I'm at peace with those things. And then it leads us, and we said last night, that we can be faithful, or last night, last week, we can be faithful to people who don't deserve our faithfulness. Why? Because of God's incredible faithfulness to us in Christ. We looked at the story of Hosea. How many of you guys flipped over this week and read Hosea after? Isn't that a great story? If you didn't, I encourage you to do so. If you want an absolutely beautiful picture of the faithfulness of God to us, read it. Now, don't read it if you don't want your pride and ego bruised. Because guess who we're compared to in that story? A prostitute who keeps running off after other lovers an unfaithful wife. That's who we're compared to. And you know who God's compared to? The faithful husband who always loves his spouse and provides for her and takes care of her and brings her back home and clothes her nakedness and speaks tender words in her ears and pledges his fidelity to her even in the midst of her infidelity. So all of a sudden you see, isn't Christianity this assault right on your pride? We want to be be in that story. I want to be Hosea in that story. And I got to be Gomer. Like, Gomer, really? I gotta, I've got to relate to this woman who's a harlot, who plays the whore, who runs out and does all of these terrible things. That's who I've got to relate to, God, really? He says, yeah, really, Bill. And until you humble yourself and can honestly relate to her, you don't get the gospel. You don't fully understand it. Because guess what happens? When I begin to relate to Gomer in a very profound way, guess what begins to happen to my heart? It is so humbled and overwhelmed. The pride is just removed in such a way. And as I relate to God, now guess what? When I see somebody else in our community who really doesn't deserve anything good, I can go and be generous to that person and kind and truly have a loving relationship with that person. Why? Because I'm Gomer. Because I know that if God can love me, a gomer, and can change me like that, then he can change anybody else, the biggest drunk, the biggest lush, the biggest whoever out there in the community. God, by his work, can change that person into my spiritual and moral superior that fast. Because it's not based on that person. Isn't that exciting? I need, like, the back row to move up here. It's, like, too quiet up here in the front. I can't see you guys back there. But that's exciting news. Because it's not about you. But then again, isn't it kind of an assault to your pride? Any of you guys liked being related, you know, being called a whore? 
I mean, that's not really, and you're probably some of you are going, quit saying that word, Bill. You can't say that word in church. It's in my Bible, I'm sorry. Uh, so, but it's a horrible word, isn't it? I mean, it, it has all of these connotations on it, and that's what God's calling us. He's going, you're like that person. What does that do to your ego and pride? No, I'm not, God. And usually what you do is you go back to your record at that point. God, remember where I was last Sunday? I was in church. You remember where I was this week on Wednesday morning? I was in Bible study. I've been faithful to my wife. I've been good. I've paid my taxes most of the time. And I haven't taken unfair deductions most of the time. I'm pretty good. I mean, I grew up in church. I went to ambassadors on Wednesday night in the Baptist church. And I was in and I was confirmed in the Catholic church. And I did this and I did that. We go to our record. The guy goes, that's all great. You're Gomer. And it just hits our pride. Because he's trying to break us down in order to humble us to the point of going, God, I am without any deserving. But yet you give me everything. And it so overwhelms me that all I can give back to you is my praise and my adoration and my best effort at faithfulness, even though I know it's going to fail. But thank goodness that your love for me isn't based on my faithfulness, but on yours. Isn't that exciting? That makes our church, if we begin to get that within the DNA of our church, folks, this church changes. The way that this church engages the community around us changes because guess who we engage? We engage all the people that know other church because church can be one of two things. I'm getting into gentleness and self-control, I promise. <laughs> my, my family doesn't believe me. They've heard this before. They go, well, here he goes. He's off. Uh, you know. Church can be one of two things, folks. It can be a museum where every Sunday we walk in and we stare at the beautiful lives of the people that are so well-dressed and hung up on the walls. And we go, wow, look at the Smiths. Don't they look great today? Ah, and the McCutcheons, they're looking very fine this morning. No problems in their lives. How are you? I'm good. You? Oh, I'm good. 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 And that's our little symbol, right? How's life? Good. Well, my wife hadn't talked to me in a week. I'm losing everything in my business. My children are renegades, but I'm good. That's church as a museum. Or church can be a triage unit or a mash unit, an ER, where people with busted up lives, broken down by sin and broken down by the weight of the world, come in every week and they look like they need to be in an ER. And they come in and they're smelly and they're messy and their lives are smelly and messy. And they come in and why do they come to the church desperate? Because the church, Christ said, I came for those folks. And so we walk in without the pretense of looking all great, and we walk in, and someone goes, how are you? And go, well, I'm still in love with Jesus, but it has been a horrible week. It's rough. How many of you guys ask, how are you, and really don't want an answer? I mean, most of us, yeah. (laughs) I mean, hey, how are you doing? And someone starts to answer, you're like, whoa, hey, whoa. (laughs) Southern pleasantries here. I mean, the southern hospitality thing, don't take it too far. I mean, when I say come over anytime, I really don't mean come over anytime. That's why I live in a gated community. I'm not calling in a pass for you. Uh, I mean, so, but if we live in a church and live in a way that says, I want to know about your brokenness because I'm broken too. And you can tell me anything and I promise I won't flinch because the moment you flinch at someone else's story, you've lost them. Because your flinching says, oh, you did that? Ooh, and you call yourself a Christian? Oh, oh, I hope. People have asked, what do you hope the church looks like in a year or two? 
I hope it looks messier than it is. That we're filled with folks who wouldn't normally come to church because they found a place at our church that says you can come and we're going to love you through it and point you to Christ in the midst of every bit of it. That's what I hope about our church. So if you want to be a part of a messy church, welcome. If you want to be buttoned up and looking good, I'm not not good at that. So we're going to try to do this. And Paul was ministering to us and saying, in the midst of your messed upness, in the midst of all of this, I want to see some things develop in you. And one of them is I'd like to see developed in you a gentleness. Galatians 5 speaks of gentleness. And where we're going to go with this gentleness is look at another passage of Scripture which talks about gentleness. And it says that gentleness coming from 2 Timothy 2 and then Isaiah 42, especially in Isaiah 42 I want to read. This is the, the story of Christ. And it says this. Behold my servant, that is Jesus, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And so there's this picture of the Messiah who's coming and it says of him, he is going to be a gentle figure. He is going to be one that part of his DNA, part of who he is, is gentleness that comes out of him. And therefore, those who love him and have him living in their lives will also show forth gentleness as he did. And it's interesting. It says that in this passage, it talks of justice and gentleness. Those two are usually, we think, mutually exclusive, aren't they? I'm all about justice in the world. I want what is right so did Jesus. It says he will be one of justice. He will, he will establish justice in the world. But he will also do it with gentleness. How does that work? Well, the picture of gentleness, isn't, another word that is used is meekness. Gentleness isn't just weak. It's not that you're walked over. But it's an incredible strength that it takes to be a gentle person, doesn't it? Because think about it. He says in Isaiah 42 that a bruised reed he will not break. We live right here on the marshes. You've seen the reeds that are around. When a reed is bruised, what does it mean about the reed? That it has now a soft spot in there. It's damaged somehow. And that what happens normally when a reed is bruised? It collapses on the bruise. It it is weakened there. It says that Jesus, the king of the universe, the God of all gods, who comes in and deals with us in our bruisedness. Interesting, last week we related you to a harlot named Gomer. Guess what he's relating you to now? You're a bruised reed. That means you're fragile. You're delicate. And so it takes incredible restraint and strength to deal with something fragile. It takes one, as Jesus says he is, that he would do everything to not make that fall. That he notices the imperfection, but instead of discarding it as something with an imperfection, he comes and begins to strengthen the imperfection. Think about that. Your God deals with you tenderly, gently. Does he deny that there's a bruise? 
course not. The only way to deal gently with something or someone is to acknowledge the fact that they need to be dealt with gently, with meekness. So it's not that he goes and denies. Most of us just want to deny that we're bruised. Or if I see a bruise in your life, the loving thing for me to do is not to highlight that bruise, but just sort of ignore that bruise. I call it the elephant in the room. And all of us just have these pink elephants in the room. We know that it's there. It's left its piles all over the place. They smell horribly. It smells horribly. But we're not going to deal with that. We're just going to deny the reality of it. Right? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You're with those people in certain relationships. And you go, well, we just can't talk about that. It's the elephant in the room. Jesus is going, I'm going to talk about the elephant. I'm going to talk about your bruisedness. I'm going to talk about your weakness, but I'm going to do it not to make you feel badly about yourself, but I'm going to come alongside of you at that moment to strengthen it and to hold it up. You're a flickering wick. You ever had that? It's just barely holding on. He says, I'm not going to put you out. I'm going to come and I'm going to do everything within my power, within my strength to fan that flame. So not only will it not go out, I'll do everything that I can to foster it, and to make it grow stronger. You see, gentleness is a coming in and assessing the weakness of the other person and then moving in in your strength but with incredible tenderness to make sure that it stands, to make sure that it doesn't go flickering out. And it says that that's how God engages us in Christ Jesus. You realize that, don't you? This table that we have right here is an incredible picture of his gentleness towards us. He said there's no other way. And we do this regularly because we need to be reminded of it regularly, because we forget it regularly, because he constantly has to come to our weakness and to strengthen us to say, I've taken care of everything for you. He was one, he says, that he binds up the wounds of the brokenhearted, that he comes near to those who weep, that he comes near to those who are despondent, and he comes near to them. Let me ask you a question. If you're trying to figure out, do I have gentleness in my life? Am I a person who's seen as gentle? Now, I've asked you to do this, and I doubt that many of you have done it. I'll just call you out. You're chickens. You're afraid to do it. I told you when we started the Fruit of the Spirit to go find somebody who loves you and you trust and has created a safe place and ask them, how am I doing with the Fruit of the Spirit? What fruits need to be developed and what fruits are strong? Did any of you guys do that? A few of you did that. Way to go. I literally have had several people come to me and say, Bill, there's no chance of me doing that. Well, let me tell you, then there's very little chance of growing. I'm going to challenge you this morning. Do people who are bruised, who have difficulties in their lives, do they come to you for help? If they don't, then it's probably a safe bet that you're not a very gentle person. Are people who are bruised and whose wick is just flickering, their flame is barely holding on, are they attracted to you? If they're not, it probably means you're harsh or your ability to do it is not strong enough Where do you go when you're flickering? Think of it that way. When your little flame is flickering, when you're feeling a bruise and you're feeling like one more puff of wind and I am over. I am so bruised there. Where are you attracted? 
what's that person? Who is that person? Christ is saying that's what the kind of people we should be. When the Spirit gets a hold of us, we're a tender people, gentle in that way. And he comes, and people are drawn to us in that. Well, how do you develop gentleness in your life? You should already know the answer to this. I've given you the same answer every week for every fruit. Do you know what the answer is of how do you develop gentleness in your life? Stare at the one who is most gentle. Go back and back and back to Christ and look at him and say, look at the incredible nature of his gentleness towards me in the gospel. Look at how he could have just come and smashed me, but instead, he bound up my weakness. He didn't tell me I wasn't weak. He didn't tell me I wasn't ill, but he came and he gave me the right medicine. He loved me. He was an incredible physician with an incredible bedside manner. Lisa and I, early on in in our marriage, we had lost two children to miscarriage, and our third uh, child, the heartbeat was very, very low, and the doctors said, you're probably going to lose this one too. Go ahead and prepare yourselves. We were devastated, and we went to a friend and a family member, honestly, who, who was a doctor and a physician at the time, and we said, basically, we were looking for hope. Our, we were flickering. We were bruised. We were holding on. And we said, give us some hope that 52 beats a minute is enough for our little unborn baby to make it through. And he looked at us, and he said, nope, he's going to die. Oh, thanks for that. We appreciate that. And it wasn't like he tried to conjole us and and, and care for us and then say that. It was just, nope. Anything else? Oh. That little 52-beat kid is 18 years old now named Will, by the way. Yeah. But a bedside manner of coming and caring for the bruises. And having a perception of the flickering wick, of having that tenderness in your heart that comes from looking at a God who has said to you, I know your days, you're barely flickering, and I'm not about to snuff you out, but I'm going to breathe the oxygen of my life into you, and you'll flame back up again, I promise. And you will not be blown over by the winds, and that bruise will not devastate you, that bruise will not define you, I will. That's who God's calling us to be is that kind of gentleness. And this table, by the way, folks, is God's incredible invitation of gentleness and justice brought together. It's the only way for this table to exist is the justice of God poured out on his son, Jesus. He was not gentle with his son. But he wasn't gentle with his son, and justice had to be, be dealt with there so that he could be incredibly gentle to you and me. Some of you are sitting out there and going, I don't deserve that table. It's most especially for you. It's most especially for the ones who are barely holding on. That he says, come and eat and drink. And let me fan into flames that flicker that's there. And bind up the bruise that's there in my son. Gentleness, do you get it? It's not just weakness. It's actually not weakness at all. It's incredible strength with the sensitivity to the needs of others and how to love them well in the middle of it. And then the last fruit is self-control. 
And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one other than to say this. Uh, what I want to talk about with self-control is very simply to put you or point you to another place. Self-control is, comes from 1 Corinthians 9, and if you can write it down and look at it later unless you've got your Bibles. And 1 Corinthians 9, 23 to 27, says, I do all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He says right in the middle that it's the ones who run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict self-control. It's the same word that he uses in the fruit of the Spirit. That the person who is going to compete and win is a man who is self-controlled, has control over his being. That basically what he's saying is this, you know yourself and you are then, you bring it under control. Now, interestingly enough, if you're a person without self-control, you're actually under the control of everything else. If you don't have self-control... You're still being controlled, aren't you? But you're being controlled by your passions. You're being controlled by your lust. You're being controlled uh, by the ebbs and flows of culture. And what God is saying in here is when the Spirit comes and takes up residence within your life, it sets up a new determination. It sets up a new set of disciplines in us that says we are going to work very hard, but the Spirit working with us to bring into control these passions that are good passions, but they have to be brought in. We talked many, many weeks ago about the word that Paul uses in this passage. He uses it as the word epithumia. It's over-desires. He's saying that desires aren't the problem in your life. It's when the desires become over-desires. Is it wrong to desire a, a, a physical relationship with a person of another sex? Is that wrong? No. But when that desire becomes an over-desire, if you're in a married relationship to want to have a physical relationship with somebody outside of your covenant relationship with your spouse, it becomes an over-desire. It's a good desire that is now out of control. For teenagers or for young people, the thing today that's been broadcast about on the internet and on all the airwaves is this. You just can't control yourself to at least be safe. Huh? You can't control yourself, at least be safe. Do you see the degrading nature of that statement? Without being vulgar, I own a dog. And when that female dog monthly decides that it's her time, she is out of control. She is an animal without any of the restraints. And so what the culture has basically said to us is you can't control yourself or your lust or your passions, but just do it in moderation. You can't control if you're under 21 drinking, but at least do it wisely. The scripture says no, that really what happens at that point is you're totally out of control and lose yourself and you lose the game and you lose the race. So when the spirit of God comes in, it establishes a control and it establishes in you a set which says, I'm going to bring these things into control, into the boundaries. Because you remember with Peter, we said about Peter a number of weeks ago that he was walking out of line with the gospel. Self-control is just moving your life so that you walk in line with the gospel. That's what self-control is. It's not a self-determined control. It's not a white-knuckle control. But it's actually a very honest assessment control. And I'm going to end with this statement. 
If you're wrestling with something, do you think God knows that you're wrestling with it? Yes? Okay. So, let's say, men, I'm a man, we'll talk. Let's say there's a temptation on the internet because there's no filters and there's no one around and it's an incredibly private sin and pornography is so pervasive today that it says that over 50% of men have a problem with pornography. Over 50%. And that most men are introduced to pornography usually around the age of 10 to 12. And that it is more addictive uh, than heroin because of the chemical changes that it makes in the mind of a man. Okay? So we've established that it's a dangerous thing. And we're going to come in the church and say, now, almost every man is going to have to wrestle with this. But most men in the church, when you ask them, so how is that? I'm fine. Doesn't bother me. If numbers are correct, 50 to 60% of you men sitting in this, and two or one-third of women now are struggling with pornography in our culture. Wow. It is the second, sex trade is the second largest industry in the world behind weapons now. I'm okay with it, though. I'm fine. I'm good. I got it. God, I'm fine with that one. Or would it be the prayer of an honest person to say, God, I want to be controlled in this. I want to honor you in this way. So I'm admitting to you right now, God, I'm admitting I wrestle with this, and I need you to help me with this, and I'm going to bring some other people into my life in a plan. I gave you a quote there at the beginning, and it should be in your bulletin, about if you want to have a self-controlled life, you need to have a plan, because guess who wants to take you out of control? It's an enemy from the pit of hell who says, if I can get you out of control, I can undermine everything that God wants to do in your life. And so instead of saying, it's not bothering me, it's not a worry for me, own it and just wrestle with it, honestly, before God. And then when that temptation comes, instead of going, I'm not thinking about it, I'm not tempting about it, I'm not thinking about the pink elephant in the room, think about this, I'm going to tell you, don't think about a pink elephant, okay? For the next couple of minutes, do not think about pink elephants, I don't want you to even have pink elephants in your mind, okay? So quit thinking about pink elephants. What are you thinking about? What do you see when you close your eyes? A pink elephant. So instead of just saying there's no pink elephant, instead, why don't you try this? God, you know my heart and everything in me wants to run this race well for your glory. And I want to win the prize and I want to wear the crown and I want to do this. But right now, everything in me also wants to run over here. And my desires and my lust are running that way. And I want to go that way, God. I need your strength and your power to control these passions within me and bring them back in line with the passions that I should have for you. Would you do that, God? And God, I'm too weak to do this, so I'm going to encourage some brothers in my life, and I'm going to call Jonathan, and I'm going to call John, and I'm going to call Ken, and I'm going to tell them, I'm going to humble myself, because I know that I'm validated by my father, and say, guys, I'm struggling with this right now, and everything in me wants to walk along the path with Jesus, and I want to do this, but I'm wrestling with it right now. Would you get in the bunker with me and fight with me for this one? Do you think some of the power from the temptation is going to be taken away at that point? Yes or no? Maybe I'm just presenting something absolutely foreign to you guys today. I I don't know. But what I'm asking you to do is if you want to live a self-controlled life, don't live an isolated life. Live a life that's so honest, that says, I want to win the race. I want to finish the race. But man, Dunkin' Donuts is on the first turn. (laughs) 
And there's a large part of me that wants to go to Dunkin' Donuts. And I need some folks around to go, no, Bill, stay on the track. Come on, Bill. The prize is worth it. It's worth it. That's a lie. Don't go there. That's a lie. It'll taste good. It'll feel good for a little bit. I promise you it will do that. But in the long run, it'll undermine you and leave you a horrible taste in your mouth. So stay on the track. I can't do that myself because guess what? This heart that's in me so wicked and deceived. It just wants to believe that Dunkin' Donuts is the best place for me to go. And if you own the Dunkin' Donuts franchise, I'm sorry. Um, I go there regularly. (laughs) Not figuratively, literally. (laughs) I don't want you to go, well, where's his Dunkin' Donuts place? Um, But if I'm honest, and I share my heart with you, and women, if you share your hearts with other friends, and kids with your parents, and parents even with your children, It changes. It's bringing into control those things. That the Spirit of God is at work. So, we have this Spirit dwelling in us. That says, I want to see the attributes of the Father created in you through the work of the Son and His Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And so we come to this table, which is the absolute representation of the love of God for us in Christ. That says, free people who've been made free in the gospel, come and eat. Come and dine and drink. If you were bruised and you can barely get to the table, then ask somebody near you to help you get there. If you're just so out of it that you just don't know what to believe, say something to somebody near you to say, I am struggling and help them bring you here to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. God, we come to this table today as bruised reeds. We come to this table as flickering wicks with barely holding on. We come as people who have pursued our desires outside and we've just, we've been unwilling to humble ourselves and to to let others help us. We've been unwilling to be honest with you, but at this table, We have to be honest that we need you. So, Lord, as we come, would we behold the Lamb of God? Would we see you and come to this table, the table of the King? Amen. Why don't we stand and sing?